You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud tipsy nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome, tipsy nerds, book lovers, sci-fi and fantasy fans to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Natalie Wright. And with me as always is the mountain climbing, thin air loving <laughs> Robin Scofield. Hey, Robin, how are you? Hey, Natalie. I, I love all the different ways you come up to like introduce me. <laughs> I sort of sit here and I'm just it's like, okay, sort of what like, is she going to say about me? <laughs> you know, in the moment, just what I'm thinking about, about you. I don't know if yeah. our listeners know how much you love mountains and rocks and being on cliff faces. <laughs> yeah. Robin's yeah. I have really a big fan of those things. <laughs> I like dangerous things. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think also some of your introductions, it's like based on what, like what I've been up to on my Instagram story. It's like, <laughs> yeah. this is true. This is yeah, true. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> if you, if you do enjoy Alpine things, you should definitely check out Robin's Instagram because she has the most beautiful photographs of wild and wonderful places. So if you like things like Thank that, you. you should definitely check Robin's. It's one of, um, one of the highlights of my day when you post things, I'm like, Oh, I get to live vicariously through Robin Aww. where she's on mountains and things we are today. <laughs> we are going to talk about books, by the way. <laughs> a book. And today we're talking about Dune, the 1965 sci-fi classic by Frank Herbert that has led to two movies and other things. Um, but we, we uh, a few episodes ago, talked about the movie. And today we're focusing on book one, Dune by Frank Herbert. And yeah, I feel like, Robin, I feel like I've been reading this book for like, I don't know, it feels like a really long time. It's a really big book. It's dense, mm -hmm. you know, so it takes some time. Um, but before we dig into Dune and sandworms and desert planets, what are you drinking today? So I, uh, I had to go with a, you know, a spiced kind of theme as I think you did too. Um, I thought about going the spice rum route, but it's, uh, winter time I'm over in Europe. And one of the big things is Glühwein over here in Germany, which is a spiced wine. They have it in red and white. I'm doing a spiced red. So, Ooh. you know, basically my typical drink, but with spice and it's hot and that pretty much sounds like Dune and Arrakis to me. So <laughs> yeah, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. I'm actually doing a rum drink. This is, this is not really very special, but it's Kraken rum, spiced rum because you know, spice and, um, mm -hmm. With my favorite mixer, ginger beer. So it's oh, really nice. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit more Caribbean <laughs> than Dune-ish. Maybe, I don't know, ginger they beer. They had a couple and... like palm trees for a second there, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, it's delicious. It's one of my favorites. And that's what I'm sipping as we discuss Dune, the book. Yes. Gosh, so Robin. Do, do you want yeah. me to do a quick setup? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for people that I don't know why I volunteered. For this is <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm so happy that you did. For people I didn't who mean to, it was an accident. Know what Dune is about? Yeah, I so, just also want to put in a. I never read Dune before this, so this is my very first time reading this book. Um, so for those of you like me out there who haven't read the book and maybe even haven't seen the movie, Robin, what is Dune? What's the setup for Dune? 
so Dune is what's what is <laughs> a big book. Um, it is about a family, the Atreides family, who are um, royalty-ish. They're they're one of the the, the royal houses of this. Of universe, and they are being sent from their home world of Caledon, which is an, a planet covered in water. It's lush, um, it's beautiful, it seems pretty safe to go take over the planet Arrakis, aka Dune, from another, I'm saying this wrong, royal family, the Harkonnens, who uh, got in trouble and were supposedly kicked off this planet. Um, the Atreides family goes to try to take over rebuild Arrakis the planet is important to the empire because of something called spice which um, can be found in the sand and the dunes and it's what they use to power their ships and all sorts of things um, there's a lot of money in it anyway then there's a big betrayal the Atreides are killed off and scattered to the wind the Harkonnens come back the emperor's a bad dude the main character, Paul Atreides, who is the son of the Duke, who was sent to take over Arrakis, has a lot of dreams, can see things, ends up lost in the desert, <laughs> and sort of with this prophecy among the native people that he is the Lisan al-Gaib, or like the Kwisatz Haderach, which is sort of a chosen one. Um, and it's kind of his story of becoming that chosen one surviving a crazy awesome desert and seeking revenge on the people who betrayed his family and who are continuing to kind of harm and colonize and use the native peoples of this planet yeah it's like it's a medieval europe western european fantasy Mm -hmm. with knights and swords and kingdoms and betrayal set in space yeah i read a thing that tore the publishing house tour called it science fiction's greatest epic fantasy novel. And I thought that was a really good description of it. Like, you know, it's a space opera and it uses science fiction tropes to tell a fantasy story, which is a really cool thing. Right. I think particularly when you put it in the context that it came out in 1965. Um, and we talked about this before when we talked about Ursula Le Guin and her story that won um, the Hugo and Nebula, I think in 1970, her 1969 novel, Left Hand of Darkness. Um, that concept that at the time it was things like um, pulpy kind of sci-fi, you know, it was kind of like comic book the, 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 mm-hmm. the books were kind of like the ace books tended to be more like um, a very formulaic buzz. I was going to say buzz, buzz light year. Buzz <laughs> it's not buzz light year. <laughs> but I know Flash what you mean. Gordon. Like, the Flash Gordon also uh, that, yeah, too far back in time, but great. And I have those DVDs here and I can't wait to watch, but um, I know what you're saying. Like the tropey science yeah, like fiction. Flash Gordon kind of like sci-fi things like uh-huh. that, like a John Carter Mars sort of sci-fi. That was sort of like what was going on at the time. And then along comes Dune and it's like way longer and way bigger and way more thematic. This is more like he's tackling serious themes like, mm-hmm you know, power, absolute power, religion, and the, the you know, politics, climate, and de- degradation of, you know, the environment by humans, yeah. all these sorts of things um, he's a tackling. And that was very fresh and new for sci-fi at the time. You know, now we have, so you know, 
what, 70 years since then we've 60, 70 years, we've got all this other stuff happening, um, in sci-fi, but at the time that he and Ursula Gwynn were breaking significant ground to bring it into a more literary canon. And then, so yeah, it's a really big story. You know, he's like, he's talking about a lot. <laughs> Dude, yeah. It's like, okay, there's a lot of themes here and a lot to there, address. There are, and he did a lot with it. And I, I liked this book actually a lot, even though it took me a long time to read it. And it took me uh, a long time for a couple of reasons and none of them are its fault. <laughs> so one, I went and saw the movie. And so I had images in my mind of what the characters looked like. And I hate when I do that, when I see the movie before I read the book, because it takes away a really interactive part of the process for me. Like when I read something, I spend a lot of time imagining what they look like and you know, the world building process between the author and me as the reader is very like symbiotic and, and, and I have to work with them and that keeps me engaged. And so when I see the movie and all I can picture is Zendaya, which, you know, great image, I'm not mad about it, but it's like, suddenly I, you know, the descriptions of Chani in the book, I'm just making her out to be Zendaya and same with Paul. Um, and so I think that slowed it down a bit. And the other thing was, is that, you know, we've read this, the, the things that are introduced in Dune have now been used in so many works of science fiction and fantasy since then. So you kind of feel like you've already read this and sometimes it's been done better. <laughs> and so you're sort of like, well, this seems like a knockoff of everything else. And then I kept reminding myself, no, this was like the godfather of these things that I'm. And, and so that's why right. I was like, this, it's not Dune's fault right. that it took me a while because <laughs> it is right. a really good story and it's well-written. I am going to disagree in terms of it took me a long time and I do think it's the book's fault. <laughs> okay. This is, this is just this me. Is how we it have was, a good episode. Yeah. But we could talk. I have, I, we can talk about that. But this is, I think, the best selling sci fi book of all time. And so mm-hmm. Dune has obviously a huge fan base and lots of people. So I do want to make this caveat that always fan, always listeners remember that these are our opinions. And I know a lot of people love this and I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's not worthy of the affection that it's received because I definitely think that it is. And I think there's a lot there, but for I'm me, so excited for the but. <laughs> but, you know, and it's, it's often, you know, as a reader, you know, there's the, you know, the why it doesn't, like trip the trigger of a particular person, you know, and that's a very personal thing. Some things that bug me as a reader, another reader might be like, well, I love that. And, and vice mm-hmm. versa, you know, the things that I love as a reader that other people are like, like, I don't mind thick descriptions and lots of description about most things. Whereas some readers that's boring to them. I'm like, if it's really helping me to develop the sense of the character of the world, I'll, I'll put up with quite a bit of that and I don't really mind it. It depends on what they're describing though. So this particular kind of story where a lot of description is spent on things like battles and military things, it's just for Mm -hmm. me, I'm just not interested in that. If you give me a three page description of, of the people and their emotions and like what they're doing or what they're wearing or what they're eating or their their backstory where they're, they've got all these like little nitpicky foibles with each other, you know, that I could read pages of that, but Mm -hmm. a three page description of like a, a battleship, you know, and all of the things with that, I'm just like, you know, I mean, I, 
I yeah. just don't care about it. So that's, that's right. just like a thing where for me, that was, you know, and there was a, a lot of that. Problem. There's a lot of that. So I can see how this would be. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like how, like, how many, how long can you read about sand dunes? Yeah. I mean, I actually didn't mind the, the conversation about the sand dunes a whole lot because I live in the desert, Robin, you've spent a lot of time living, you know, in your life in a, in, in a desert environment in the desert Southwest. And I do think Frank Herbert has really a beautiful language and his way of with words and the way he describes things are impeccable, just beautiful. I mean, and I could mm-hmm. that I, I went back and forth between the audiobook and the paperback. Like I tend to, when I'm doing a, a book for this, um, for the show and listening to the narrator, you know, read those descriptions about the desert. I, I didn't really get tired of that. I thought that was a really big highlight of the story for me. You know, he's just so great with world building another pro, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, if you're a writer and you want to know how to world build, I think that this is a primer for that. Like he just, you can tell he has absolute command of his world. He knows everything about it. And it, so it becomes so real in your mind. And I can see why readers really love that because, you know, you feel like you absolutely could paint a picture or make a 3d model of his, of his world and know everything about it. So that was really great. Yeah. What I think one of the cool things that I read and learned about Frank Herbert is that he was actually working, he was writing a story for the USDA. He was a writer and he was in Oregon doing research on a program they were trying to do to stabilize sand dunes. And they were going to introduce like a European grass to the sand dunes to stabilize them. And during this project he was working on, he became super intrigued by the desert, by desert cultures, by the concept of like bioengineering a desolate landscape and that's sort of what inspired him to read to write the story and I always love when I stumble across these like biographies of people and these random things that you're like wow he uh this came from like a real life process the funny thing now is like 50 years later the state of Oregon and the USDA are spending a ton of money to try to like eradicate these invasive grasses they brought in to stabilize the dunes because like turns out (laughs) you should just leave nature alone (laughs) But anyway, one of the, one of the, that ties into like one of the themes of Dune is like, I don't know if it's so much climate change, but people's impacts on an environment and on people's ability to live and exist within an environment. And one of the things I really liked that I thought Frank Herbert did well was his descriptions of the Fremen peoples and the Fremen cultures and how they interacted with successfully lived in the desert. And I, I think you and I can both attest to this. A lot of people think the desert is this like horrible, wretched place. And we both think it's like insanely beautiful. And so I kind of, I one of the things I liked about this book is it was like this love affair also between Frank Herbert and the desert <laughs> through yeah. the Fremen people. Like you could see, you know, we can dive into this other topic and I actually do want to hear your thoughts about that. But, you know, one of the biggest complaints now about Dune from critics is that it's a white man saves the indigenous population story, which it, which it is. But I think the thing that makes it at least palatable to me is that one, the Fremen are like total badasses and don't need saving. (laughs) Um, And two, Frank Herbert is not writing about them in a condescending way. He's writing about them in a very like uh, loving way. Like he's impressed by these peoples he created and, you know, they're, they've figured out how to master desert power in this environment. And so, um, where am I going with this? I want to hear your thoughts on, I guess, the Fremen peoples and how he wrote that 
and their interactions with the desert. And two, we may as well address the whole colonist, uh, white man saves the world, chosen one story. Um, did that bother you or do you think it was handled in an okay, palatable way? I'm not sure. I really, when I read, got there because I was so irritated by the sexism Okay, <laughs> that I couldn't, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I got there. Okay. On the colonization, um, I do think that that is potentially a valid complaint. Okay. However, I do think it's possible that anyone making that complaint didn't really read the book or and or read more about Dune and the uh, coming, the, um, you know, the, the second and third books and so on. Because um, right. I don't think that Frank Herbert is saying that Paul is a good guy at the end of the day. That's a major spoiler. But his, if you listen to interviews with Frank Herbert and his conversations about Dune, his intention was to create a character that was seemingly good and incorruptible mm -hmm. and corrupt him and make him be really not the, the Messiah that people thought right. he was. So to the extent that people think that this is just a white guy writing about white guys saving people, I think that it's not necessarily valid when you look at the, the work as a whole. And that's just my yeah. opinion based on- Can I, I want to just jump in and say one yeah. piece to that before we move on, just because this ties to that. Yeah. But um, that's a good point what you're saying, because also at the end, people keep saying, oh, you look, he looks like his father. And they're like, no, but he reminds me of his grandfather. And his father, the Duke Leto Atreides was like a good guy. His father was like, not- Grandfather. The, the, his yeah. grandfather, I'm sorry, right. uh, Leto's father. And so they, uh, many times during the end of the book, people but his, corrected also, themselves. His grandfather, his grandfather, that also could there'll be a reference to the Harkonnens. Yeah, so it could his be grandfather, both, but I think- yeah. His, neither of his grandfathers about, are good people. No, they're both bad. So it worked right. for both. But I think they kept saying he looks like Leto. No, he looks like his grandfather. And so, yeah, it could right. be both of his grandparents were bad. But right. he Frank Herbert did make a lot of su su like subtle and not so subtle references to exactly what you're saying. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Carry on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying people can't think that. I just do think that it doesn't necessarily give credit to the work as a whole or to read the closest reading of the story that mm -hmm. you could, that you could give. Um, it sort of like jumps to a conclusion, but I yeah. do think that there is not enough conversation about how sexist the story is and how and there's not, you don't find it. No. You don't find any conversations so, about that. Okay. So I, again, it is, it doesn't pass the Makomori, the Makimori test, it doesn't pass the Bechnel test. It doesn't pass any of those tests. So there is not a single female character in this first book that exists other than to serve the needs of a male character, mm -hmm. not one. Mm -hmm. So there is no female agency. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and we had this conversation about do androids dream of electric sheep, where these men could imagine these amazing technological futures, but they couldn't imagine a woman as being good for anything other than sexually servicing them, burying their children or making them a fucking sandwich. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's why women exist. Woman, chicken pot pie on my hand. Fix me a chicken pot pie, right? You know, With or, spice. or yeah, give me some spice, but you know, it, it so mm -hmm. I was so bothered by that and where it really started to, I think, stick in my craw a bit with this writer, um, was 
you have the Benny Gesserit, which we, I think there's a, worth a whole conversation about whether or not they're just basically a character for a manipulative spidery female, right? You know, like uh, that's that trope or that stereotype mm-hmm. about women that they're manipulative and they um, manipulate men and things like that. So that's their whole thing, basically, is <laughs> manipulation. That's pretty much their only character trait or one of their primary character traits. But you have Jessica, this Benny Gesserit that he establishes basically when she's with, I can't remember who she's with. Is she with, oh, one of the lieutenants of, of Duke Leto. I can't remember which one right now. And she basically demonstrates that she could kill him with her mind. You know, it's like, you think you can pull that knife on me? Fuck that. No, I will just snap. I will just, you know, kill you with my mind and frightens the shit out of the dude. This like, you know hardened military lieutenant but so the Benny Gesserit order though is all in service to men like they so these women who developed these powers over centuries why don't they just fucking take over (laughs) you know what I'm saying but it's because he's stuck in the trope of the western European medieval fantasy that's it it, it's a medieval fantasy but it's set Mm -hmm. in the future in space and so at the time during the renaissance the medieval period Really, queens, it didn't matter how much power a woman had, her only power existed through manipulation of the of the man or right. her genetic line. And so this trope that is the holdover from this period where women really didn't have power, this is, he just transplants this into a futuristic society and doesn't imagine the potential of women to grow <laughs> beyond this yeah. trope. This is my big yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think I had, what is it? So I, w- I looked at it or I gave, I granted him the grace of 1965. But right. again, I think some of that comes from our age differences and the different experiences we had. You, you know, I, I'm younger. And so I, I was born into less of a sexist culture. Not that it was not, but right. I think you had, you know, so it's e- probably easier for me to, to, to be like, oh, well, that's okay. It was 1965. Um, well, I don't know so, if it's easier. I, I would say, Robin, I think for me, what I'm saying is it's just, I, I find it not interesting. Mm-hmm. So I right. find it and hard it, to relate to and to be so, you know, interesting to me. I was yeah. thinking about it a lot, like, why is this taking me so long to read? And I'm like, well, all the women, you know, are just mm-hmm. blah characters. Yeah. And then, okay. So in that vein, then we have the bad guy Harkonnen and all of his chapters it's a mustache twirling, you know, like evil hair, hair, hair guy. And it's all tell. It's all tell. Yeah. He just sits there telling, telling, telling. And it's like this revealing what he's going to do. Don't tell me what he's going to do. Just fucking do it. And so as a storytelling concept, that coupled with the fact that there is, I think also, I've never heard anyone complain about this, but more than the colonization issue, I think this is again, much more blatant and not really very arguable is the homophobia Harkonnen. And this again is a really big tropey kind of thing that was used a lot in the past as a shorthand for a bad guy. If, if the guy was a pedophile or a homosexual, that was shorthand for evil. And here we have, he's fat shorthand for evil. We have, he's um, he, he has sex with men shorthand for evil and he likes little young, young boys. He likes boys mm-hmm. as sexual partners. Oh, and he has red hair. 
<laughs> shorthand for evil as well in passwords. I'm a ginger, by the way. You're listening to me. You can't see me, but um, if this is all of these things are just shorthand. It's not really character development. It's just, hey, right. here's a red-haired, fat, homosexual. Therefore, he must be bad. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's and like that, you, didn't, you don't even have to work for that. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. at the time, again, 1965. So yes, we can put it in the context of the time. Yes, I get that. And I'm not saying that this whole story sucks because of those things. Not. And if you love it, you love it. Great. I'm just saying that for me personally, once yeah. you see some of these things, it starts to be like, oh my God, every chapter with Harkonnen to me was boring because yeah. it's just tell, tell, tell. And it's all the mustache twirling, you know, like evil bad guy. And it literally even like chuckling laughter. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm going to do something evil. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I started reading Dune actually like six years ago, seven years ago. And I put it down because I was like, this is all telling. And, yeah. and even like Paul's... Um, ability to see into the future, everything. It was very passively written and very telling. And I couldn't get past the first third, the first time I read it, because I was like, this book sucks. For some reason, I liked it better this time. The first time I read it, I I felt all those things. And I was like, this is the most telling book I've ever read in my life. (laughs) So it's interesting, one that I've had two different experiences with it too. But, you know, one version of me agrees with you and one version of me (laughs) disagrees. (laughs) Two parallel universes of Robin reading this. One Robin was like, in in the Schrodinger's cat version of this of this podcast, Robin is mm-hmm. both agreeing and disagreeing, which I can yeah. relate to. Well, so there's another I don't disagree that it's like yeah. sexist and telling. And yeah. I just somehow was like, enjoyed it, but I, everything you're saying is spot on. <laughs> right. And I probably enjoyed it. The book is divided into three parts, like book one, book two, book three within the book. And I would say mm-hmm. I enjoyed book one the most. Mm-hmm. I, I really struggled to get through book two. And then book three was bothering me partly because of the things we've talked about, but partly because yeah. it's like, so you're telling me you spent like multiple chapters getting, just having them wandering the desert and shit, you know what I mean? And, and the Harkonnen attack. And then you wrap all this guy goes from like a 16, 17 year old boy. to like spoilers, a battle master, battle master emperor of the universe in yeah. the, a matter of pages. It's kind of like the end. He had spent so much freaking time waxing poetic about the desert. <laughs> By the end, it's like, hurry, let's get through all these plot points. So the end, and it, but it's not done in a really, to me, exciting way. It's done in a very mm-hmm. telling info dump. It's like, I'm kind oh, of hey, I lost my son. I'm going to marry this chick I've never met before and leave my love behind and with virtually no emotion at all on anybody's part. I mean, there's all yeah. this emotion earlier in the book between Jessica mm-hmm. and all of them. And the very last few chapters, I felt like were kind of a letdown where it's like all this shit happens. Finally, <laughs> we were waiting for yeah. shit to happen. It finally happens. And it's done so quickly and so summarily, you know, in a very telling kind of way that it's like, what? I felt and that. No I had like, to do that. Yeah, I had like four chapters left and I was like, this must go into another book. This must be why there's like two and three books because I was like, uh, we, uh, they're not even fighting the emperor, the Sardaukar, the right. Harkonnens. I was like, wow. And then, yeah, everything's wrapped up pretty like quickly in like four chapters in the end. And you don't really, 
you know, one character I was really intrigued with was, was it Alia, the, um, Jessica's daughter who Paul's sister, Paul's sister. And Alia was in Jessica's (laughs) belly (laughs) Um, when Jessica underwent this ceremony with the Fremen to become their Reverend mother. And Alia was changed through that. And I really enjoyed her character. Like at the end, when she's like talking back to the emperor and Vladimir Harkonnen, I was like, wow, this is the only person in this story who has like some humor, some gumptions, like, and then, but she only like, I only got to hear her speak in like two pages. And then that was all wrapped up. And it's like, wow, they introduced this really interesting character toward the back half of the book and then didn't even do anything with it. I don't know. There was a lot of that. that- yeah, actually, I guess I'm going to revise what I said, Sh- that the, the inclusion of that character may allow this book to pass the Macamori test, mm-hmm. but then she summarily dismissed. <laughs> I, I am totally with you on that. I totally agree. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then, yeah, like, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so that's, that's a writing thing. That's like that. Mm -hmm. And there's this other thing that he does throughout. And this is a very dated storytelling technique that people don't really do anymore because it's very disfavored is the talking heads. We maybe have talked about this before, but he does this extensively. I mean, within Mm -hmm. like you're in Paul's head and then the next sentence you might be in Jessica's head. And then a paragraph later, you're in Duke Leto's head. He is omniscient narrator. He goes from head to head to head to head, telling you the thoughts, fears, ideas of each and every character. The thing was, while I generally dislike that, I remember reading Stranger in a Strange Land and it drove me nuts that Heinlein did that like a son of a bitch. But for some reason, the way that he did it didn't bother me as much. And it got me thinking that do we as modern storytellers now being told by editors and agents, don't do that. Is that part of what makes Dune special? Mm. And are we losing something when we don't, you know what I'm saying? Because for example, in modern storytelling, you generally have a point of view that's just one character. George R. R. Martin gets around this head hopping concept by he does each chapter as a different character, right? So in Arya's chapters, we're just in the head of Arya. It's all her observations and stuff. And then the next chapter we might be in Bran's head and so forth. So you get all these different perspectives. You just get them in different chapters. But here in Dune, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like the development mm-hmm. of all the characters makes the world in a way richer because you don't just know the main character. Like in the Harry Potter series, you only, the whole entire series is only told in Harry's point of view. So we only ever know Harry's point of view. Right. But in Dune, you really get to know all of these major named characters more deeply because you get all of their, you know, you really get to see the scene in an, so I don't know, just a question, Robin, what do you think about that? That's tough. I think he did it well because it didn't bother me and I was able to track. I think the problem, I think probably why publishing houses and editors said we're done with this is because they kept getting so many people who couldn't do it well (laughs) and they got tired of reading it and they were like, we're just going to tell these people to stop. I think done well, it's totally fine and it's interesting and it gives I think for us to stay in this industry, absolutely don't do it. It's wrong. It's silly. Cause I think if someone does it and it's pulled off, well, do it because I like reading different things and I like reading different styles. I think it's probably hard to pull off. Like I, you and I both edit people's writing and stories and always every time with a new writer, you get that head hopping and it's done really poorly usually to where it it's confusing. It's, it doesn't work. And so 
my guess is really it was just a way to make their jobs and life easier. But I, I, th- I agree. I think it shouldn't be a form rejection because of that style of writing if it's done well. I, I, I didn't have a problem with that aspect of this book at all. But my, my little editor brain and my writer in the 21st century brain was like, no, you can't do that. And it's like, right. I was just parroting, you know, the man. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Like what we've been trained to do, what we've been yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was, it was that, it just was occurring to me as I was reading it that sometimes with modern stories, um, you know, books keep getting shorter and shorter and editors and publishing houses say it's because of attention span. And it, it, I suspect it's partly that, but it's also partly that they don't want to spend the money to, you know what I mean? To, mm-hmm. to create, I mean, the editing time alone that it takes to edit a really long work, that's a lot of manpower. That's part of the problem is the expense of that, which is mm-hmm. huge. And you know, they don't have budgets like they had in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s to do that. It might be attention span, but you know, a book like Dune, you look at some of these older works that have stood the test of time and they're really rich. You know what I mean? Like The Wheel of Time, A Song of Ice and Fire, um, of course, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Dune series, you, you know, they're, they're lengthy works that include a lot of things that aren't in books anymore because mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's like, are we, sometimes I wonder as I read an older work, like I'm fine with losing chauvinism and stereotypes and caricatures standing in for character development. Definitely let that all go. Yeah. But do we lose sometimes with modern writing, some of the depth of the world building of the characters. I don't know, but I can see why Dune was very attractive to a generation of storytellers. When you read Dune, it's kind of hard too to separate out the story itself from its influence on so many things past it. Like you've talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, you said that earlier, it's just, it's so influential on so many stories that it's like, oh, this is like X, Y, Z. This is like that. It's like, well, this came first, but I'm reading it now having already taken in all that other media. And so at times it was like, you know, the chosen one, been there, done that desert planets, been there, done that. Well, it's interesting. I was, another thing I read was that like this tying into that, that like star Wars completely ripped off Dune, which of course, but like even the Benny Jesserets and their skills was like the Jedi's, you know, the planet Arrakis and the, you know, is like, and apparently also Frank Herbert and some of his group, were in this, they had this joke organization they called were too big to sue George Lucas. And that was the name of their like fake organization was we are too big to sue George Lucas because, you know, he ripped off from all of these writers of that time. (laughs) And I just thought that was funny, but yeah, you know, we all know star Wars. I think that's again, the, the, one of the things that I feel bad for doing the series on is that, you know, we, we see the movie doing or reread it and we're like, well, I already saw that in star Wars and you know, star Wars came after and was done really well, but like, yeah, you know, it's the story isn't everything that was written after it. It's, uh, it was, it is like one of those works like Wheel of Time or Lord of the Rings, where all of the writers that followed used it as a Bible of sorts for, for their own stories. So it's an important one to have read, I think, if you're in this genre as a reader or a writer, and I'm glad to have checked it off my list finally. Right. The other thing in star Wars, I mean, this, this, you don't really get this. If you don't, if from the movie Dune, 
that just came out and you really don't get it unless you've read the entire book. But by the end, you realize that the other kind of like ripoff in the star Wars universe is the concept of the secret genetic connection between the secret family connection. That's a big reveal. That's like, wait, what? You're my dad, you know, um, (laughs) like the evil character and and I am your grandfather. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh, um, that's a, that's a major one. But again, when you think about Dune, you think about the stories, Frank Herbert was a historian and Mm -hmm. that's, that was like his history was his deal. And when you look at history, it's like, well, yeah, all these noble houses back in, you know, the day of royalty in Europe, Jesus, I mean, they were all interbred. It was like this person's cousin was marrying that person's sister and blah, blah, blah. And so there were all these genetic connections. And so it's, I think it's from that perspective, this is, this could be the Tudors. I mean, this could be, you know, any of those, it's that it's just set in space or on, you know, on on an unknown planet in the future, but it's, that's what it's about. I felt, I felt the story was much more about the political. I mean, he sort of like gives lip service here and there to the concept of terraforming this planet and ecology, but that was to me more like an aside. And I feel like all of it was very, he had this desire to fit everything into this concept that I'm going to create this character that seems like a good guy and rises to political power. And he's really not as good as he seems. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so everything sort of like is forced to fit into that at times. Yes. And then he's like, I want to write that, but I also just researched sand dunes and yeah, exactly. ecology. So we're going to put in some of that. And, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> no, and as a writer, I can relate to that because if you yeah. spend long enough with a story, it'll start including all this weird random shit because, yeah. you know, it's like, Oh, I just, you know, did this, I'm going to throw that in or whatever. Totally. I have a whole story about rock climbing. Cause as Natalie said in the beginning of this, I like to hang on the edge of cliffs. <laughs> so I was like, well, I may as well write about it. <laughs> and then next so, week, yeah. if you take on paragliding, then who knows, you know, you may find a totally. way for this character to paraglide. I absolutely you never will. know. You never know. <laughs> his but, is just obvious. It's like, his is, it was like everything I'm passionate about, you know, probably psychedelic drugs too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, he did that too. He grew much. Yeah, there was a lot of psychedelic drugs. Yeah, you could tell this was like a late sixties, early set, like because there was a lot about like psychedelics and premonitions and uh, yeah, yeah. Right. I felt like this was a pro psychedelic book too, just to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give the impression I didn't like the book at all because I did. I did like the story, but but I found it tedious to get through at times, yeah. and a lot of it had to do with the writing style, you know, where it's like a lot of telling, not so much showing, and a lot of time spent with people just like talking about things. And it's, and again, it's kind of like telling us what's going to happen. Don't tell me what's going to happen. Like, just wait and show it to me. Like, you know, you know, from pretty much the first couple of chapters that there's going to be a betrayal and who the betrayer is going to be like, you already know that. So then when it happens to me, it lost, lost punch because we already know that, you know, Harkonnen sits there and all of his chapters, he's literally telling you what he's going to do. Right. Well, you could have just cut Harkonnen's chapters out completely and you literally don't right. lose anything. And you yeah. could just then actually show Harkonnen doing the thing. The things. So, right, exactly. So those, those things for me, it like slowed it way down because to me it was boring. And then we finally <laughs> get to the place where he's doing something. I'm like, but now that's not exciting because I already knew what was going to happen. <laughs> right, because he already told me. us. 
Well, we oh. want to hear readers what your your thoughts were on Dune. Did it? Yeah. Did you like it? Did you not like it? What were the aspects of it that made it a good read for you? What did you think was meaningful and powerful? What did you think sucked? <laughs> what What was the reason that you had to put it down? Um, right. Yeah. All of these things. What we got right. What we got wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. We'd Definitely love to hear. hear people's thoughts on it. I have, you know, it's, it's a complex book that I think it, for me, it brought about complex feelings about the book. Like the, mm-hmm. do I like this? Do I dislike it? I think it's, you know, definitely interesting. And I think if you're a fan of the genre, it's probably a must read because it's again, like seeing how things evolve from it is very intriguing and how yeah. influential he, his writing was to so many, Absolutely. but I'm looking forward to reading something more modern. I almost feel like I want to make a rule. We're not going to read anything that was written prior to 1970 <laughs> for a while <laughs> because it's like, oh, uh, you can't handle any more sexism <laughs> and misogyny yeah. <laughs> and telling. No, uh, let's do, we're going to shoot for a more modern book for our next one. Well, kind of ish. It'll be a surprise. This is our last episode of 2021. So, right? Is this, I don't know. I was just going to say 2020. I'm so far. It's like, well, what kind of year it's been? I'm like, what year am I in? I feel like. I think everyone is feeling that way. So we're going to end this year with Dune, a a classic. I don't know if this airs before or after Christmas, but happy holidays. Happy new year. um, We're excited to bring you guys new content in 2022. We'll regroup with something more modern. Yes. All right. Great to talk to you, Natalie. Cheers. You too. Cheers, Tipsy Nerds. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.